Keith Beavers, and of all the punctuations, I think I like the ampersand the most. I mean, the name, ampersand. What does ampersand even mean? It means ampersand. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 13 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast. This is the bonus season. My name is Keith Beavers. I'm the tasting surgeon of Vine Pair. Hello. I feel like the, the, the category of kosher wine often is very confusing. And it doesn't have to be. So let's understand what kosher wine is. Break it down so you're not confused. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at BarrelRoom.com. Cheers and all the best. You know, what's what's very obvious, I get now, what's very evident. If you're a listener of this podcast, one thing might be obvious <laughs> is that as I talk about wine and the history of wine, and we talk about antiquity and we talk about, you know, even like pre-antiquity and all that. One thing about these times in human history is that water was not always potable and it was dangerous at times. And the one drink that was safe was, well, alcohol, but primarily Wine. Wine was not only alcoholic, but it had things like texture and aromas. Even in ancient times, even when, even when people were putting all kinds of flavoring herbs and honey and stuff and watering down their wine in like the Greeks and before the Greeks and the Romans, even though that was all happening, wine evoked, evokes emotion. It gives you a sense like, oh, this is a nice wine, you know? And I feel like throughout the history of, well, throughout human history, throughout wine history, and throughout religious history, as we move from polytheism to monotheism, wine continues to be a heavy influence on the religions of that time. Not only did the Greeks and the Romans actually have a God tied to wine, but that God was worshiped through sacrifice and libations, which is wine. Then you have Catholicism, monotheism, where wine is attributed to life, like blood, which is interesting. It's not water. I mean, yes, I know that wine looks like blood, but it was also a representation of transformation and even like safety, feeling safe. And that feeling of safety, of wellness, or whatever it was at the time, the oldest monotheistic religion on the planet, Judaism, took this 
element of safety to a whole new level and they integrated it into their daily life and they gave rules to it and they made sure that what they consumed was clean, appropriate, pure, or kosher. And they even developed dietary laws to make sure that, or guarantee that what they consumed was kosher. They called these dietary laws kashrut and it survives to this day. It's the oldest monotheic religion on the planet and these traditions survive to this day. I find that amazingly fascinating. Now, kosher is for food and for wine, but in the wine category, because of wine's, I guess, not intense, um, um, like it's heavily involved in blessings and throughout the Bible, that it would it would make sense that wine itself would have its own kosher guidelines. And that's what's really interesting is that food in the kosher realm is all about the source or where did this food come from? And then that is guided through you know, the kosher laws, kashrut, and then you get to the plate. But for wine, it's not about the source so much as it is about the handling of the wine after it leaves the vineyard and gets into the winery or the grapes or the winemaking process, let's say. And once the wine is in the winery, it's made like any other wine, save for one procedure we'll talk about in a minute. But to be considered kosher, only a person of Jewish faith may handle the product and touch the winemaking equipment from the time the grapes arrive at the winery. And any of the items or substances that are used in the winemaking process from yeasts and barrels and fining agents, these are all, they must be kosher as well. And this goes back to the food element of kosher and the source. And these items I'm talking about, they must, it's all about the origin like I said, and the transparency transparency through which this item gets to the winery through the kosher laws. And what these laws are guaranteeing, again, I'm using the word guaranteeing, is the strictest quality and hygiene of these particular items. For example, in the fining agents, Finding agents, well, you know if you listen to Wine 101, a finding agent is an element that is used to help find and reduce organic material in a wine to make a wine look a little bit more clear, as it's also called clarifying a wine. And animal-based gelatin is not allowed under kosher law. Also, dairy-derived casein and isinglass from non-kosher fish are also not permitted. Egg whites are sometimes permitted, but very often bentonite, which is a type of clay initially found somewhere in the Midwest, I think it's Minnesota, I think it was, is a certain kind of clay that when introduced into wine can do the work of fining that these other agents can do. And I talk about all of these fining agents in, in season one, if you want to go back to, I think it's how wine is aged. In addition to this, if a wine is kosher for Passover, which is a major holiday on the Jewish calendar, 
This means that the wine and the barrels used in the winemaking process may not or have not come into contact with bread, grain, or any other products specifically related to leavened dough. There's even a guideline to ensure that when people who are not practicing the Jewish faith touch a wine that is kosher, that it remains acceptable, pure, and kosher. And that is that 80% of the grape juice that is going to be fermented into wine must be flash pasteurized to about 165 degrees. And then kosher items might, will, can be added to the grape must to continue the fermentation and winemaking process. This is called mevashel wine, which in Hebrew means cooked or boiled. And this way, according to the religion, a non-practicing server can hold and serve the wine and the wine will remain kosher. So just to be clear, this is specifically for kosher wine or kosher for Passover. The majority of kosher wines out there and some of the finest kosher wines out there are not mevushal. So that's basically kosher wine for you guys. Um, there's no rules about varieties or anything like that. It's just about how it's handled. And I know I said that there's not a lot of um, guidelines for the actual vineyards, but in Israel, that's different. There's actually very, very ancient biblical laws that some Israeli winemakers adhere to. There are four laws, two of which are mostly symbolic these days in modern times, but you'll notice we're going back to that quality-driven, um, pure acceptableness. So you have Orla, which states that for the first three years, the fruit of the vine may not be used for winemaking. And actually, that makes complete sense. People do that to this day because I kind of think that was ahead of its time, actually. And like, we're talking like biblical times. Next, there's Kalai HaKarem which states that crossbreeding and growing other fruits between the vines is prohibited. Again, something that makes complete sense. Like I said, those seem pretty practical. Now, the other two um, meant something different back in the day than it does today, but it's been um, sort of tweaked for modern times. You have Shemitah, which is every seventh year, the field should run fallow. Now, that necessarily can't always happen, you know, because businesses want to make money. So in modern times, what that is, is symbolically the vineyard is sold to somebody not practicing the Jewish faith for the duration of that particular sabbatical year. Now, I don't believe this uh, transfers control to the other person, but it's merely symbolic and kind of an honor for the non-practicing person to take ownership for the sabbatical year. The fourth and last one is Trumat and Ma'aserat. And this is a unique one. Just over 1% of the production is poured away in remembrance of a tithe once paid in the time of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. I'm directly quoting Jancis Robinson here. And I, I know that this is more of a symbolic thing these days, and I'm not really sure how this works. I'm assuming um, a small percentage will go to some sort of charity, but I'm not really sure. Again, these last two are mostly symbolic. 
And not everyone that makes kosher wine practices this sort of agricultural for rule thing. But in Israel, it tends to be popular. And last but not least, there's all kinds of wines out there that are kosher. Like I said earlier, some of, there's fine wine out there that's kosher from Bordeaux to California and Napa. It's not about the source. It's about the handling. So that's kosher in a nutshell, guys. I hope it kind of cleared some stuff up going forward when you're at the wine shops and you go to the coaster section, you, you know what you're looking at. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. 